First John chapter 3. This evening, in our study through the London Baptist Confession, we have come to chapter 12, which is on the doctrine of adoption. So we're considering tonight the doctrine of adoption, one of the most uh, clear and one of the most wonderful verses with regard to the doctrine of adoption is found in 1 John chapter 3. As we'll see as we study this doctrine of adoption tonight, it means that we have been placed truly and fully into the position of sons through Jesus Christ. That's what adoption means. We've been placed truly and fully into the position of sons through Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. He has lavished on us a love so great that he would call us his own children. The Apostle John is in wonder at the reality of this doctrine. He is astonished. What kind of love is this, that I would be a child of God, Last week, we considered the doctrine of justification, and if you were here for that, uh, let me ask a question. Is justification to be thought of as a moral transformation? Anybody? No. Some heads shake. No. Justification is not to be thought of as a moral transformation. It's not something that happens inside of us. Instead, justification is a legal declaration. Hopefully, you remember that from last week. Justification is a legal declaration in which God, in the courtroom of his justice, declares us to be righteous, to be right with him. He has imputed our sin to Christ. He has laid our sin upon his son in the cross, and he now imputes or lays or credits Christ's righteousness to us. We have the righteousness of Christ, and so in the courtroom of God's justice, he declares each and every one of us, through faith, to be righteous. We are declared righteous. It's one thing to be declared righteous in the courtroom of an eternal judge. That's a wonderful thing. That surpasses our imagination. The reality of being declared righteous by an eternally holy God, considering that we are sinners, is something that goes far beyond our full ability or our ability to fully comprehend. It's amazing. But it's one thing to be legally declared righteous by a judge in the courtroom, and it's another thing to be welcomed into the family of that judge. And for that judge to then become our father, and then to be treated by that father as an eternally beloved child. And so what we're considering tonight is the movement from the courtroom of God's justice into the household of God's love, as we consider this doctrine of adoption. Everyone that has been justified, every single person whom God declares righteous, having declared them righteous, he then also accepts them into his family and he gives them his name, And he loves them as his own child. J.I. Packer, in thinking about the doctrine of adoption, he says this. I think it's a helpful place to start for us tonight in trying to communicate the importance of this doctrine. He says, Father, the, the title Father, 
is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Did you hear what he said there? Our understanding of Christianity, the way we understand what Christianity is, it can't be any better or any richer than our understanding of adoption. The degree to which you understand the doctrine of adoption, that you are a beloved child of God, is the degree to which you understand Christianity. That's what J.I. Packer is saying, and I think I agree with him on that point. If you notice on your bulletin, the inside, on the chapter 11 on adoption, it's only one paragraph. It's the shortest, uh, par- it's the shortest chapter in the confession, but it's jam-packed with rich line-after-line truth of the doctrine of adoption. And what we're, we're going to do tonight as we study through this is, uh, as you notice in the outline, we'll break it up into three main headings. And first, we'll consider adoption as it is ours through union with Christ. Adoption through union with Christ. Before we jump into that, let me read the paragraph from the confession, and then we'll walk through those first points there under the first heading. The confession says, God has vouchsafed or graciously granted that in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, all those that are justified shall be made partakers or sharers of the grace of adoption. By this, they are taken into the number of the children of God and enjoy their liberties and privileges. They have God's name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are made able to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him, as by a father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption. And they inherit the promises of everlasting salvation as heirs. So we'll start then with considering adoption through union with Christ, that first heading. As I've said, adoption means that someone is legally or truly placed into the position of a son. And so, naturally, if we're going to understand what adoption is, then we have to understand what sonship is. And more specifically, we have to understand what sonship is as the Bible teaches it. In the scriptures, what does it mean to be a son of God? And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk our way through the scriptures and we're going to look at this development of the theme of the son of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? Well, first of all, we see that sonship was lost in Adam. If you have your Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Again, we're trying to understand adoption. Adoption can only be understood when we understand sonship. The first reference we see in the scriptures, or at least the first person that we see in the scriptures who's identified as a son of God, is Adam. And we see this in Luke chapter 3, in verse 38. This is in the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 23 begins, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and then so on. The list of man after man, a couple women in the mix, all the way down to to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
And so Luke tells us that the very first son of God was Adam. And maybe that sounds strange to you. Have you ever considered that Adam was called the son of God? Luke calls him the son of God. You might raise the question, isn't Jesus the only son of God? How is Adam the son of God? Well, certainly Jesus is the only eternal son of God. So when we read that Adam is the son of God, it's not saying that he is equivalent to the eternal son of God. But there are certain characteristics about Adam as he was originally created in the garden that reflect or tell us something about sonship. Adam was a son of God in the garden. How was Adam a son of God? Well, he was created in the likeness of his father, in the likeness of God. So he bore the likeness of God, and in that sense, he was a son of God. But not only was Adam created in the image of God or in the likeness of God, he also had the rights and privileges of sonship. What does a son possess? Well, we'll see a lot more of what a son possesses as we continue our study, but on the most basic level, doesn't a son rightly possess fellowship with his father? If you think about the way that a father relates to his son, there is an exclusive relationship there that doesn't exist between the father and and other children who are not part of the family. To be a son means you have a distinct relationship with your father. Adam possessed that kind of fellowship with his father in the garden with God. He enjoyed fellowship. He also lived in the place that God had given him. Uh, So so one of the, the traits of being a son, as we'll see this evening as we continue to walk through adoption, one of the characteristics of being a son is that you have an inheritance. Well, God gave Adam an inheritance. He gave him the garden. And and the idea was actually that as Adam continued to cultivate the garden, most scholars believe that what's being communicated in the the scriptures is that the garden was meant to expand and, and to be cultivated to include all of the earth. And so the idea was when Adam was placed in the garden, God was placing his son in a sense in the promised land. He was giving him the inheritance. And he was saying, this is yours to cultivate and to rule over and to reign over and to exercise dominion over. He gave his son a sense of inheritance. And so he had the rights and the privileges of a son, Adam did. Fellowship with his father and inheritance in the garden. But that sonship obviously was lost through the fall. He was cast out of the presence of his father. He lost the privilege of fellowship with God. He lost the right to the inheritance in the garden. He was cast out from it. And so the sonship that was originally established in Adam in the garden is lost. Adam, the son of God, becomes cast off, no longer considered a son of God. Inherently, he now becomes a son, and his offspring become, as we know in the scriptures, children of Satan. They have a new father in their sin, and it's not God, it is the evil one. But it's not long after the fall. So Satan falls into sin. He loses his sonship to God the Father. But it's not long after the fall that sonship is again introduced into the redemptive story. And it's introduced in the people of Israel, which takes us to point B on your outline there. Sonship lost in Adam, but then secondly, sonship patterned in Israel. You can turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. One of the things that's important to notice when Israel is identified as a son of God, which we'll see in just a moment it is, it's almost always an association with the exodus, with God bringing his people out of Egypt and calling them to himself. 
as we'll see, it was God adopting his people to himself and when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. But Exodus 4, verse 22, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And so God calls Israel his son. We could go to Isaiah 11, verse 1, where it says that God called his son out of Egypt. But another helpful verse is found in Romans chapter 9. If you want to jump to the New Testament with me, you can. Romans chapter 9. And this is important because here, not only is Israel called God's son, but Israel is called God's adopted son. Verse, chapter 9 of Romans, verses 3 into, into the beginning of 4, Paul is expressing his burden for his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews. He is burdened for their salvation. And he says in verse 3, chapter 9 of Romans, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then this is what he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And so Israel then, Adam was the original son of God. Adam lost his sonship. But then it's as if God looks down, having originally promised to Abraham that he would give him a nation, it's as if God looks down on the offspring of Abraham and he says, this is my son now. I'm adopting the nation of Israel to myself and I'm going to give them the rights and privileges of sonship as my child. And in a lot of ways, Israel did enjoy the rights and the privileges of sonship to God. They were given the name of God. They represented him. The nations knew that Israel was the nation of God. He placed his name on them as his children. They were given a certain measure of access to their father again. The the, the access that was lost in the garden was in some measure restored in the temple. So God's children, his adopted people Israel, had some measure of access again to God. And they were given the inheritance of sons in the promised land of Canaan. And so we see sonship then patterned in the people of Israel. But, of course, it wasn't long, again, before Israel's relationship to God as their father, them as his son, was strained. Israel rebelled against God. They went after their idols. And ultimately, they refused to repent and to return to the Lord. And so God's son, Israel, lost its inheritance in many ways. It was cast off again, scattered among the nations. Like Adam, because of their sin, Israel lost many of the privileges of sonship. But the prophets of the Old Testament, they promised that there would be a day in which that sonship would be restored. And so if you follow the trajectory so far, sonship established in Adam. Adam lost that sonship through his son. God adopts Israel to himself. He gives them many of the rights and privileges of sonship. Israel loses those privileges and rights because of their sin. They're scattered among the nations. They hardly look like the children of God. But even in that condition of their scattered state, God promises there will be a day in which I will restore the sonship of my people. They will be gathered to me again as sons. And this sonship would be restored in a way that was far greater than any Israelite could have ever imagined. God would restore sonship to his people when the true son of God himself took on human flesh and became a man and entered into creation. 
And that brings us to letter C in the outline. So sonship lost in Adam, sonship patterned in Israel, and then letter C, sonship fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, of course, is the true Son of God. Matthew 3, 17, after Jesus' baptism, God the Father, he speaks from heaven and he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So only in the incarnation of Jesus, only in his relationship with his Father, does true sonship begin to be brought out into full focus. And so in Adam and in Israel, we see types, we see pictures of what sonship is, but they're broken pictures. They're shadows of the true substance. True sonship in its clearest form and its true nature is only found in the person of Jesus and in his relationship to his father. This is seen, if you think about it, this, this idea that true sonship is only really revealed ultimately in the person of Christ, and, and it hadn't been revealed so clearly prior to that point, it, that's, that's clear in the fact that in the Old Testament, God is addressed as Father in all of the Old Testament books. God is addressed as Father 14 times. Or not even addressed as Father, but spoken of as Father, referred to as Father. He's referred to as Father 14 times. Just in the gospel accounts, in Jesus' life, that's recorded for us in the four gospels, Jesus refers to God as his Father 60 times. So you have this much of your Bible on, the left, on your right side of the Bible, 14 times God is referred to as Father. In this amount of pages in your Bible... In the life of Jesus, God is referred to by Jesus as Father 60 times, at least 60 times. So what does that tell you about the revelation of sonship as you come to the New Testament? We're being told, this is what it looks like to relate to God as Father. Jesus, like no one else before him, can speak to God as Father. He is the true Son. No one preceding him could ever speak of God in the way that Jesus did as his Father. And so Jesus then, as the true Son of God, he stands in stark contrast with both Adam and Israel. In all of the ways that Adam failed and in all of the ways that Israel failed to be the true sons of God, Jesus succeeded perfectly. Jesus alone is the Son who was perfectly pleasing to his Father. Adam was supposed to be that, but he wasn't. Israel was supposed to be that, but they weren't. Jesus alone is the one who perfectly reflects the glory of his Father. Israel was supposed to reflect the glory of God to the nations, but they failed to do that. Jesus, as the true Son, perfectly reflects the glory of his Father. Jesus alone is inherently worthy of the Father's love. In Deuteronomy, we're told God did not set his love on Israel because they were great. They didn't deserve his love. Jesus actually inherently deserves the love of his Father. He's the only true son who merits, who earns, who deserves, who has a right to the Father's love. And Jesus alone has rightly earned the Father's inheritance. God gave Israel an inheritance in the promised land, but not because they earned it. Jesus, and they lost it when they disobeyed, Jesus has earned for himself the title of son. And he has earned for himself the inheritance of sonship that belongs to a true firstborn 
Son. So only Jesus then inherently and completely possesses all of the rights and privileges of true sonship. He alone is the true Son. Sonship is fulfilled in Christ. But the beauty of the gospel, what gives us hope, is that Jesus does not keep those rights and those privileges to himself. Jesus is the true Son, but instead of keeping the rights and privileges of sonship to himself, he shares them with us, and he gives us the status of sonship. And he does that, in point D on the outline, through our union with him. Jesus shares his status of sonship with us through our union with him. You can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 5. This is another very important uh, verse when it comes to the doctrine of adoption, one of the ones that most people go to in demonstrating this doctrine from the scriptures. Ephesians 1 verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. He predestined us to adoption as sons, and then he says, through Jesus Christ. He adopted us through Jesus That means we are adopted in eternity. We're adopted in time, but God purposed and planned our adoption in eternity by looking at what his son would accomplish and by seeing us by virtue of our union with Christ. So when God adopted you, it's because he saw and determined to unite you to his son. And it's through your union with Jesus that you now receive the adoption as as children of God. It's on the basis of that union that Jesus could call his father, our father. So if you think about it, after the resurrection of Jesus, he says to Mary, stop clinging to me, he says, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But then he says, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father. Go and tell the disciples, I'm going to my father and your father. Jesus can say that his father has truly become our father because of our union with him. Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, the most basic prayer that we pray as believers, when he's teaching us to pray, he doesn't tell us to pray for someone else uh, as if if we're praying to some, merely to to God in heaven as king. But he he says, pray our father who is in heaven. Our Father, my Father, your Father. When you pray, pray our Father who is in heaven. So all throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus personally addressing God as his Father. But then we find him saying, actually you, when you go to the Father, you address him as your Father. Because in me, he has become your Father. And so then, through our union with Christ, we have forever received the title of sons of God. We've been, forgiven, we've been given the right to call God our Father. So then the question is, what are those privileges and rights of sonship? What does it mean for you as a Christian to be able to call God your Father, to be able to pray, my Father, our Father who is in heaven? What does that mean for you as a believer? Well, the confession lists a number of those privileges for us in the paragraph and 
the points that are listed under the second heading here are basically just an outline of those and the scripture references that go along with them. And so we'll work through the different liberties and privileges of adoption. What does it mean that we have been adopted and that we can call God our Father? Well, first, letter A there. We have God's name put upon us. We have his name put upon us. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 14, verse 1, we read about the redeemed having the name of God upon their foreheads. God stamps his name upon his redeemed people. And basically what that means is God puts his mark upon you or his name upon you in that he is saying, you belong to me. You are mine. You are part of my family. You are called by my name. And that's amazing when we think about the family that he adopted us out of. And so we were previously part of a different family. We belonged to Satan. Jesus says that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who were refusing to believe in him, he says, your father is Satan. Those who are not in Christ are called children of the enemy, of the devil. That's the family we all belonged to, and we were happy to remain there. We didn't want to belong to the family of God. Scotty Smith says this about you when you were in your sin. He says, when the father lavished his love upon us and made us his children, we weren't just street-wandering orphans looking for a good meal and a warm bed. We were self-absorbed slaves to sin and death. God has taken self-absorbed slaves of sin and death, and he has brought them into his family, and he has put his name upon us. The holy name of God has been stamped upon his people so that he now says, you are mine. You belong to my family. Not only does he give us his name when we're adopted, but we also receive the spirit of adoption. So you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Verses 15 to 16. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 16, we read, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You have received the spirit of a son, and the Spirit himself, the Spirit of God, testifies that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit indwelled Christ, of course, throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelled him when Christ ascended on high. He sent that same Holy Spirit into the church, and that same Holy Spirit now indwells every single believer. And so one of the benefits of adoption, the privileges of adoption, is that you have received the same Spirit that indwelled Christ. And it was that Spirit that enabled the Son to cry out, Abba, Father. And it is that same Spirit that that now enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. We've received the Spirit of the Son, which we, Galatians 4, the other reference here, we won't go there, But there the Spirit is called the Spirit of the Son. We've received the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of the Son. And he cries out, he testifies to us, he cries out within us, Abba, Father. He convinces us we can call God our Father. Abba is the affectionate and confident and intimate title that a son gives to his father. There is only one place recorded in the Gospels 
in the four gospel accounts, there's only one place recorded where Jesus refers to God as Abba, Father. I'm sure that Jesus referred to God as Abba many more times than that throughout his earthly ministry. But there's only one time in the New Testament that's recorded for us as Jesus calling God Abba. Does anyone happen to know where that is? Jesus calls God Abba in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his hour of greatest affliction, the darkest hour of his life, as he prepares to go to the cross, and as he's contemplating the cup of God's wrath that he's about to drink on behalf of his redeemed people, Jesus, on his knees before his Father, he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. In the moments of his greatest anguish, in the moment when Jesus needed most to know that God was his intimate father present with him in his affliction, Jesus calls his father Abba. And what the scriptures are telling us is that when God gives you his Holy Spirit, that same spirit of intimate relationship with the Father now bears witness with our hearts that we can just as confidently cry out to God as Abba, our intimate Father, the one who loves us. As Steve Hoffmeyer put it, he says, There's no longer the demeanor of a slave cringing in fear, but the heart of a son drawing near to his heavenly Father in love and trust and comfort. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts and crying out within us, Abba, Father. It means we now are able to experience the comfort and the love and the trust of our Father. So as those who are adopted, then, we've been given the spirit of adoption who bears witness that we are sons and who cries out within us, Abba, Father. And then closely related to that, point C, we have access to the throne of grace. Ephesians 2 Verse 18, this is specifically speaking of the oneness now of Jew and Gentile in the family of God and the common access they have to their Father. We read in Ephesians 2, verse 18, For through Him, that's through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So think for a moment about Jesus' ministry on the earth. Think about some of the prayers. Uh, We could consider the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about the prayers of Jesus that he offers to his Father in the Scriptures. And could you imagine, in any of those moments, the Father being cold or indifferent or annoyed or bothered by the prayers of Jesus? Could you ever imagine that Father would not want to listen to the prayers of Jesus? I don't think any of us would say that. I think we would all agree that the Father, in a sense, every time the Son prays to him, the Father is eagerly turning his ear toward his beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Surely when this one prays to the Father, the Father is eager to listen to him, to hear what his beloved Son has to say. What Ephesians 2 is teaching us is that because we have been made sons through Jesus, we now have that same confident access to our Father by the Spirit. He gives us that same welcome, the same attentiveness that he gives to his son. And so we have access to the Father. We have access to the throne of grace as his adopted children. And then letter D, we have God's fatherly care as his adopted children. And there are five things listed here. 
with regard to God's fatherly care for us. First of all, we are pitied. Psalm 103 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God never ignores the pain or the sorrow of his children. He's never apathetic. He's never unconcerned for the needs of any one of his children. He says of his people in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, he says, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. In the affliction of his people, God himself was afflicted. He has compassion for his people in the Old Testament. In the same way that truth is applied to every one of his children in Christ, he is afflicted in all of our affliction. He's compassionate. Secondly, not only are we pitied, but we're protected. We have his protection. Proverbs 14, 26 it says, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. His children have refuge. He protects them. He is with them to, to guard and to protect. I saw on the news recently, maybe some of you saw it as well, there was a five-year-old child who was dropped off by the school bus at the wrong stop, about a half a mile from where he was supposed to be dropped off. I think it was in Oklahoma. It's 105 degrees that day, and there is doorbell footage of this five-year-old fighting back tears, obviously very, very scared, completely alone, going to houses and knocking and pleading with people to please help him find his mommy. That is the picture of being left alone and vulnerable. A five-year-old child wandering alone in 105-degree heat without his mommy or his daddy. You and I, as we wander through this world, we are never like that five-year-old child. Our father never leaves us vulnerable. He never leaves us wandering defenseless as we face and confront the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. He is always present with us. He always protects us. Of course, we'll pass through hardships. We'll experience pain and sorrow. But he's present with us as our father to protect us in the midst of every single one of our afflictions and hardships. And he will never allow us to experience anything that's ultimately for our harm rather than for our good. As his adopted children, we have the protection of our Father. We also have the provision of our Father. We won't go to Matthew 6, but it's a familiar passage describing God's fatherly care for his children, his provision for us. He clothes the lilies of the field in splendor, he makes sure that the birds have their food, and will he not much more clothe and feed and provide for every single one of his children? Your father knows your needs. He'll always provide for you. We have the provision of our father because of our adoption as his sons. And then fourthly, we have the discipline of our father. Hebrews 12, verse 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you are a son of God, you have the loving discipline of your father. The thing that you and I need most, what do you need most in all the world? What's your greatest need? I would argue from the scriptures that our greatest need, the thing we should most desire, is to be made like Jesus. That's the thing we most need. And therefore, the greatest gift that our father could give us is likeness to Jesus. And one of the ways that our Father graciously gives us likeness to Jesus is through the painful process of discipline. 
His discipline is never in wrath. It's never vindictive. It's never for our harm. Rather, it's motivated by compassion and by an affectionate desire to see Christ more fully formed in the lives of his children. God loves us far too much to allow sin to remain unchecked in the lives of his children. And then fifthly, God's fatherly care for us means that we are kept forever. We are never cast off. We are sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, God has not decided to adopt you, only later to change his mind and decide that he actually doesn't want you as his child. He has sealed you for the day of redemption. Your adoption cannot be lost. The the legal process has already been undertaken. You belong to him. You are his child. You're you're, You're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And when Christ returns, you as a child of God will certainly be revealed as one who has been eternally adopted by a gracious father. And then the last thing here with regard to the privileges of adoption, letter E, we receive an inheritance. In biblical times, an inheritance was reserved for sons, and more specifically, inheritance was was reserved for the firstborn son. Inheritance was for the firstborn son. Through our adoption, our union with Christ, we are given the inheritance of the firstborn, who is Christ. Galatians 4, verse 7. I'll turn there and read that. Galatians 4, verse 7. We read, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you are a son, then you have become an heir. Romans 8, verses 16 to 17 tells us, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, Then it goes on to say, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We are children, and if we are children, then we are heirs. We share in the inheritance of the firstborn son, who is Jesus Christ. So what is that inheritance? What is your inheritance as an adopted child of God? Well, it is... Most foundationally, eternal life. In the Son is eternal life. If you are in Christ, you have been given right now, you are in possession of, through him, the inheritance of eternal life. But it's also the kingdom. In Luke chapter 12, not only do we inherit eternal life because we're co-heirs with Christ, but Jesus has inherited the kingdom as the rightful heir. And then Jesus shares that kingdom with us as co-heirs with him. Luke chapter 12, he says to his disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You are made an heir of the kingdom. We will live and reign with Christ as sons and daughters of God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We will live and reign with him as heirs of, of the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll do so because we are united to Christ, who is the true heir of all things. So those are the liberties and privileges of our adoption as sons. And then we'll finish briefly with three applications of the doctrine of adoption. In other words, what should change in your life when you understand that you are an adopted child of God through Christ and have truly and fully been placed into the position of a son? Well, first, by way of application, we should commune with our Father. We should commune with him. As we've seen, the doctrine of adoption means that we have 
full and confident access to our Father. He never turns us away. He never gives us an uninterested or apathetic ear. But having that sort of access means that we have a responsibility as well to actually take advantage of it and to be in communion with our Father, to go to Him. Steve Hoffmeyer, again, to quote him, he says, An earthly father is grieved if his children neglect him and do not speak to him. Fathers, how would you look upon it if you came home from work and walked into the room where your children were, yet they totally ignored you? If in the morning they would not even greet you? The point is that we have a relationship to sustain, and this is done by communion. The fact that we are the adopted children of God with full access to our Father means that we should daily seek frequent communication with our Father. We should live with Him. We should walk with Him. We should talk with Him. We should be in fellowship with our Father. And then secondly, by way of application, we should represent our Father's name, and we should do it well. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As God's children, we have his name stamped upon us, as we saw. He has put his name upon us. He has identified us as those who belong to him. And as those who belong to him, we have the responsibility to represent him to the world. And so our life should be a faithful representation of our Father who is in heaven. We should reflect him and represent him well. First Peter chapter 1 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You are a child of God. You ought to be holy like your Father is holy. Our adoption should encourage us to not be conformed to the sinful patterns of this world, but to be diligent, to look like our Father and to represent Him well. And then lastly, we should love our Father's family. The doctrine of adoption, our understanding of our sonship through Christ, should lead us to love our Father's family. By that I mean we should understand our position as God's beloved children, and we should also understand the unique and precious bond that exists now between every child of God, because we share the same Father. Our lives should be characterized by genuine love and care for the family of God, for his children. This is what the Apostle John teaches us in 1 John chapter 4. We'll end with this if you want to turn there. This will be the last thing we consider tonight. 1 John chapter 4, as God's beloved children, we ought to love his family. John tells us in chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So as those who belong to our Heavenly Father, we should look around, not just at others in this church, but at others in other churches around the world who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have received the same adoption as sons, and we should love them as those who belong to the same family, who have the same father, the same bond with our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, to finish with a quote from J.I. Packer, the same one from earlier, Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. May 
the reality of God's love for you as his adopted child if you're in Christ. May that reality sink deeply into your soul. May you understand the riches of what it is to be called a beloved child of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus, the true Son of God. We thank you that he has perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. We thank you that he has perfectly kept all of your commandments. We thank you that he has been the perfect Son that we could never be. And we thank you that he has died in our place and been raised from the dead on our behalf, that we now might share in all of the privileges of his sonship. We pray that you would grant us faith in your Son. We pray that you would grant us deep enjoyment of what it is to be called your children through our bond with Christ. We pray that you would help us in applying these things, help us to be faithful to commune with you, help us to be faithful to represent you as your children in this world, help us to be faithful to love one another as brothers and sisters who belong to the same Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.